Hello. Thank you for joining us for Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. I've heard people say there's only one church in our city, and that's kind of true, but it also misses the fullest expression of the word church. What is the church? It's more than just the building down on the corner with the fancy big doors and steeple. The local church from its inception has been a structured community of believers who were connected with Jesus Christ. That means there's more than one church, and in fact, the word church covers more than just local believers. It includes believers globally. Dr. Corbett is exploring the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthian church as recorded in the New Testament of the Bible. Tonight, Dr. Corbett continues in the Corinthian series. Stay tuned to discover that the church is bigger than you think. Let's join Dr. Corbett now. We're going to continue through the last few. Today will be one of the last few that we're doing in in Corinthians. And, And the purpose of this is for us to look at what the New Testament has to say about the church, God's plan. And this, we'll see in a moment, is hopefully going to achieve some of those objectives. I want to say, firstly, I love the church. I've been going to church since before I was born. And when I was old enough to realise where I was, uh, which was uh, St Matthew's Anglican Church in East Geelong, I became fascinated with church and would do things like count the number of bolts in the rafters, wonder why we had to kneel on these bits of wood with sort of foam on it. And, and then as I began to understand the, some of that reasoning, I met Christ at the age of 15 and my life totally changed. And as a result, I committed my life to Christ. At the age of 15, I began to read the Bible. I'd never read the Bible before. I'm reading through the Bible. And the age of near 16, I saw that Christ talked about receiving the Holy Spirit, whom he would send. And so I prayed and asked God the Father to give me that which Christ was talking about. And one night in... Cox's Road, Nor Lane, Geelong. I was prayed for on a Wednesday night and I received the baptism in the Holy Spirit and that experience changed my life and and I, from that point, had a growing commitment that I was going to serve Christ, no matter what that looked like. Through my mid-teen years, I thought it was going to, uh, I was on a tennis pathway and I thought I was going to be a professional tennis player and and uh, travel the world playing tennis and serving Christ somehow. That was, that was my, my life map. Uh, that life map changed dramatically with a number of events and it became clear that I am in the middle of the will of God even though I didn't realise someone else had a different life map for me. But I'm going to say this. I think church is an incredibly genius plan of God to further his plan. Just amazing. And I have met people who have said, I don't, I'm not going to go to church anymore because I've been hurt by church. And I want to address that in a moment based on what Paul has to say here. But I want you to understand that when I became a youth pastor, I served under a senior pastor who committed adultery. 
with women in the church. So you might think, well, that would be enough for me to go forget it, I'm over with church. But it didn't. You know why it didn't? Because that wasn't the church. That was not the church. And that man was not representing Christ. And he hurt people, but not the church. It upset me greatly, especially since Kim and I found out about it two weeks before we were to get married. And we then got married and then she graduated from Deakin University and we moved to Shepparton, Victoria, where my second oldest daughter lives in Shepparton now. And I served there as a youth pastor and I served under a pastor who embezzled $80,000 in that one year that I was there. And you might think, well, that would be enough to make me with church. But it didn't. You know why? Because he wasn't the church. (laughs) He was a jerk. That's what he was. (laughs) Who eventually, when he did it another two or three times, ended up in jail. And in that process, as a a 20-something-year-old young man, I saw a country church dealing with a situation really really poorly so the next church i went to i was invited back to melbourne and i served as a youth pastor under one of the most godly men i've ever met in my life but he was he was old i think he was born old (laughs) and so we only served with him for six or six months or so maybe just less than a year and then a, a newer pastor came in and this was his first senior role and We served with him and he didn't exhibit the same integrity that Bob Smith, our old, the first time we actually encountered a pastor, didn't exhibit the same integrity that Bob did. And a lot of people got hurt by him. But we didn't throw our hands up in the air and go with church because you know why? He wasn't the church. He was a poor representation of Christ. And we went and planted a church in the inner city part of Melbourne, a place called Williamstown, which is, if you know Melbourne, it's like over the Westgate Bridge and you're, just, you're in Newport, then you're in Williamstown. And we planted a church and then we were there for three years and it, it grew and it ended up planting 10 churches or so out of it. And then in the process of that, God called us to Tasmania and here I are came in 1995 and in that time we've experienced all kinds of things from people who have been less than gracious at times but they aren't the church they are just people struggling on a journey with Christ and that's okay and here we are into our 28th year of pastoring this church and I'm so thrilled that I'm not the only one gathered now in this room or online, who loves the church. I love the church. It is God's plan. And I heard someone say, even when the church is at its worst, it's still the best thing going in town. And that's so true. It really is. I've heard people say, well, since I've left church, I've met people who really care. And I find that a shame 
that you didn't experience God's kind of care in the church you were going to, I also think, wait five minutes, you'll discover that in the world they can be as ruthless as anyone else. So the church is a pretty cool idea. So that's a little bit of background as to the why, into the what we're about to have a look at in looking at an exposition through Paul's epistles to the Corinthians. And today I want to hopefully inspire you and encourage you that the church is bigger than you think. And as we begin to think, for those who were with us from the outset of when we came here in late August and then installed in the middle of September 1995, we only have one surviving member with us in this church, and that's uh, Judith Brain. But there are others who came along pretty quickly afterwards, and you've been on this journey too. Thank you. And this is the thought that I hope that we all get, that what we are doing is laying a foundation for generations to come. I read something, unfortunately, on Twitter, and if you're not on Twitter, don't. Someone tweeted this, Jer, I hope the rapture happens today. And I thought, you must be in for a bad day. And secondly, there may be those here who are going, rapture, what's, what's a rapture? And I go, thank you. That's good. That means you've been getting good theology, you've been in this church, because the rapture is a load of nonsense. That's what the rapture is. It's not God's rescue plan to get poor, struggling Christians out of a nasty world. It's just not true. God has placed the church into a world that can be downright horrible. And you know, the record of history of the church is this. Whenever disaster happens, the church runs into it, not away from it. During the first plague in the Roman Empire, the officials of Rome fled Rome. They fled to their country estates. And the historians, Tacitus and others, write this, that it was Christians who stayed in the city to care for the dying during the first plague that hit Rome. And history tells us that down through the centuries, Christians have run into the evil, not fled from it. So I hope today you're inspired to realise that just like the stories, the classic stories of those who were something but they didn't realise they were something, for example, the horse and his boy, story by C.S. Lewis, where the boy thought he was just a slave slash servant of a tyrant sort of guy who lived on a coastal plain and and then toward the end of the story c.s lewis reveals he wasn't just a boy he was a prince in fact he was the rightful king and i think there are some christians here and you need to realize you are not just a christian you are a son or daughter of god representing the high king of the universe in this part of his domain and may that send a shiver down your spine as you realize that so we are in first corinthians chapter 16 verse 1 i'm going to read the first verse then we're going to pray now concerning the collection for the saints as i directed the churches of galatia so you also are to do let's pray father as we gather together as your saints your people imperfect vessels of your grace imperfect reflections of who you are but really in our heart trying to reflect you 
more clearly to a world that is hurting, broken, lost and lonely and desperately trying to fix itself, yet they can't. I pray, Lord, that you would help us today to realise that what we can't do on our own, we can do together. And not only together, we can do it together with you. And so, Lord, today, help us to have a rekindled vision and passion for your church. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of this presentation, I hope to appeal to those who have not plugged in have not committed to the church have not come to see the church for what it is to make that commitment today let's consider this verse this is the opening verse of the closing chapter of first corinthians now concerning the collection for the saints so the first thing i want to point out is that that word saints is used by religious people who know very little about christianity to refer to a special supergroup of christians but that's not how the new testament uses that word saints I heard a Christian say this oh I'm not saying I'm a saint or anything and I get the everyday expression but it's I don't want us talking like that because it's not an accurate way to talk an accurate way to talk is to say something like I'm not perfect but because of what Christ has done in my life he has accepted me the way I am and the Bible word for someone who used to live this way on their own without any regard for God and now God has taken them and opened their blind eyes and broken off the handcuffs that were around them and the shackles that were around their legs and the shackle around their neck, broken it off. When God does that to someone and brings them into the light and fills their lung with real spiritual air, that word to describe them is saint. And it means separate. You've set, they've been separated. And so when we talk about saints, we're not talking about Saint Christopher, who finds lost things, apparently. I'm not sure about that. Or any other so-called saint. We are talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. That's what the New Testament describes every one of you who knows Christ. The second thing I want to point out in that verse is this. And I've heard people say there's only one church in our city. And that's kind of true, but it's, it also misses the fullest expression of the word church. Do you notice how many churches there are in Galatia? The answer is plural. Because see how Paul describes the church in Galatia? The churches of Galatia. It was a region, not an entirely big region. And therefore... Church means something. It means a local gathering of people. Plus, it means the bigger thing. And I'll point that out in a moment. But I want you to see that just from this opening verse of chapter 16. I also want you to understand that Paul, when he became summoned by Christ to take the gospel wherever he went, simultaneous to that, Christ called him to start churches. And so the church is plan A. It's not plan B. I've, I've heard people very, very confused about this. They read the Old Testament and go, oh, I see God's plan, but God couldn't pull it off. So now he's got plan B, Christianity, the church. And I feel sorry for them because their picture of God is incredibly small. The church is plan A. From Genesis 1, 
Verse 1, God had the church in mind and he had you in mind. Can you imagine that? Before he spoke and there was light, before he spoke and there was anything, he envisaged this day when we would gather on the other side of the world to Eden, almost exactly, and that we would be meeting here and that every one of you would be in this room sitting in that particular seat on this day. Isn't that amazing? He knows everything about you and everything that you will do, everything you have done. And he could foresee from the beginning of time this moment. This is his plan A, believe it or not. Can you believe that? We are God's plan A for our region here. If the prayer that arises in your heart is God help us, then that's a great prayer because that's exactly what we need. The help of God, but it is God's plan A. So the church is comprised, as we've kind of looked at in the opening verse of chapter 16, it's comprised of local congregations and the global body of Christ. And this is one of the most beautiful things that we worship in a way that we might assume, especially those who've been in this church since birth. And there are people who have been in this church since they were born. And some of them I've married. My wife... Kim introduces me to people and says, here's my husband. He's married many women. (laughs) And (laughs) it's a play on words because I've only ever married one woman, but I've helped others to get married. And the thing about being in this church since you were born is you think, well, I guess every church does church the way we do church which is why it's good when you're on holiday sometimes to go to a church not like our own kin, not like our own tribe, and just see how it's done. You know, there are some churches where the pastor doesn't wear the trendy, cool, hip clothes that I'm wearing, Heidi. They wear what's called a dog collar. And you know that dog collar represents a manacle of slavery to Christ? And some look at that and go, oh, they're just being all highfalutin religious. No, they're actually being exactly the opposite. They're professing their utter slavery to Christ. Paul could save the church, of which this is a church, that all in the church were a part of the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, just a few chapters before this chapter that we're looking at. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And there we have a clue as to what the church is. It is the body of Christ. The body of Christ. And this is going to be a really important point as we understand what Paul is getting at in this chapter. And so here's the thing that we, if if you go through the New Testament, you'll notice this. The New Testament makes absolutely no allowance for someone to become a Christian and not be a part of a church. There's no allowance for it. Why? Because it was unthinkable. Because the moment you become a Christian, you become a part of a church. You become a part of a local family. This is critical to understand. So important is the church that it was prophesied by the ancient prophets. I want to show you this. Christ's mission to establish the church, which is his plan of redemption, which means rescue, which means the healing of individual souls and the healing of creation, was prophesied long ago. In fact, we could go to Genesis 3.15 and see the first utterance of what Christ was going to do, where he would crush the head of the serpent and establish 
his church goes right back to the Garden of Eden. But I want to focus on something from the prophecy of Daniel, which strangely was given to the then world emperor, King Nebuchadnezzar II of Babylon, who had a dream, a scary dream, so vivid that he was terrified by it. A great statue. And you might remember the story. He told no one what was in his dream. But he put it out to all the spiritual gurus of his realm and said, if anyone can tell me what I dreamed and what it means, then I will give them great honour. And the magicians and the wizards and the so on complained, that's not fair, you have to at least tell us what you saw so we can tell you what it means. He said, no, if you're that good, you tell me what I dreamt and then tell me what it means. And so if you don't, the king said, the emperor said, I'll put you all to death. And eventually, as he said, right, that's it, kill them all. Daniel comes into the room, a man of God. And he said, no need to do that, emperor. God, the only God, the only true God has now shown me what you dreamt. And here it is. This is what Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar that he saw a statue and we're reading from Daniel chapter 2, verse 27. Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay on your bed are these. To you, O king... As you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So what Nebuchadnezzar saw was the head of gold representing Babylon, the chest of silver representing the Medo-Persian Empire. And then he saw the Greek Empire, the middle trunk of bronze. And then the iron legs were the Roman Empire. And then the coalition of Rome and Jerusalem to put to death the Messiah. The clay speaks of earth. It's the Hebrew word, eretz. It's the Greek word ge, which, where we get geology from, geography and so on. 
and that soil, that clay, that piece of the land and Rome put Christ to death. And Christ was the stone, the rock, who came and struck that by rising from the dead. And all of the kingdoms tumbled. And then that rock, when he ascended, the rock remained on earth. His body remained on the earth and it filled the earth. See the prophetic picture of what God has planned for you, his church. This is a powerful prophecy of God's vision for the church to fill the whole earth. To fill the whole earth. Jesus told several parables about this in Matthew chapter 13 Matthew chapter 13 is known as the kingdom chapter and he said this he put another parable before them this is Jesus saying the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field do you get that a grain of mustard seed it's a tiny little thing it is the smallest of all seeds but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. There's quite a bit we could say about that, but let's just look at this now, that this parable of the kingdom describes the church growing and filling the earth. Again, that same prophetic vision, and Christ has given it in a different word form. So we see that the local church that we read of in the New Testament was a structured thing, a structured thing. It was a community of believers connected with Christ. That's what we see. Paul tells in each of the epistles to the elders and deacons, set it in order. He writes to Timothy, set the church in order. He writes to Titus, set it in order. This is what it's to look like. The New Testament describes each local church, of which we are a local church, to be connected to all other churches. To be connected to all other churches. That's why it's important, I think, tonight. If you can, please come to Gateway Baptist Church tonight at 7 o'clock. Come and join us. Be a part of the church in this city. Be a part of our church connecting with other local churches. I think this is important. I think it's important generally for churches to realise the church doesn't just stop at our four walls. The church is huge. It's global, as I hope to show you in a moment. We go on to verse 2 of Paul's epistle to the Corinthians, chapter 16, verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. What's Paul referring to? He's not talking about tithes and offerings, but he is talking about this is when the church gathers. Here's the first thing we probably should notice. The church met regularly on which day of the week? The first day of the week, which is Sunday. Sunday's the first day of the week. Today's day one of this week, Sunday. The church met on Sunday. Why? Because Sunday was the day that Christ rose from the dead. In numbers, as in, the, as in the way numbers work in the Bible, they often carry symbolic meaning. Seven carries 
a significant meaning because we know in it, in six days God created everything, on the seventh he rested, and the seventh sort of marks completion. Seven speaks of complete. So we have in the Gospel of John, which we will look at in our next series, that John gives us seven miracles that Christ did. He gives us seven I am statements that Christ gave, seven sermons and so on, and seven speaks of complete. But what does eight speak of? Something new. Christ rose on the eighth day, the first day of the week. Something new. Why else did the church meet on Sunday? Because the church was birthed on a Sunday, the day of Pentecost was a Sunday. Chapter 16, verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So what was the collection they were receiving? It was to support the poor and impoverished of Jerusalem. There'd been a famine that had come through that part of the world, and we read about that in Acts chapter 11, 28 where Agabus the prophet stands up and says, thus says the Holy Spirit, a famine is coming on the land. And Dr. Luke tells us, who wrote Acts, this was fulfilled during the reign of Caesar Claudius. That's Acts 11.28. And so they were impoverished in Jerusalem. So what does this church in Corinth do? It takes up an offering to send back with Paul to support their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. The church supported each other as they could if it seems advisable that i should go also they will accompany me so the fact that paul is dealing with this shows that god raised up apostles to be the connection point to be people who could connect churches together who could help churches who could oversee churches be a point of reference for them verses five and six I will visit you after passing through Macedonia. Why? Why Macedonia? Because that's where there were more local churches that Paul had to oversee, help and connect as well. The churches of Macedonia included Thessalonica and Philippi. We read Paul's epistle to the Philippians. We read his epistle to the Thessalonians. They're the churches of Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you and even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. So Paul was that conduit to connect churches. Verse 7, For I do not want to see you just now in passing. I hope to spend some time with you. If the Lord permits. And I read that this morning and I stopped and and again I, I, I said to Kim, Isn't that amazing? Here's the Apostle Paul, the man who was taken into heaven. In that moment when he was stoned to death. And in that moment he went to heaven and he heard things and he saw things. And he he will talk about this in his second epistle to the Corinthians. And then he came back as the believers gathered around him and prayed that God would raise him back to life. And God did. And, And yet here's Paul saying, I'm not sure if this is what God wants. And that should give every one of us confidence to live confidently that we may not know what God wants. But we should do the right thing because that's what Paul wanted to do. I love that expression, if the Lord permits. This is what I plan to do, if the Lord permits. I started off by sharing with you, I had a life plan. My life plan was to win Wimbledon, the US Open, French Open, the Australian Open and do it several times. That was my plan. God had a different plan. The Lord did not permit my plan. But I will stay, he says, in Ephesus. Ephesus! Now we've got another group of churches on the other side of the sea. 
until Pentecost for a wide door of effective work has opened to me and there are many adversaries. Do you get that? Wherever God establishes a church, what is there? Opportunities and adversaries. Isn't that great? Because we're not mamsy-pamsy, weaky-neaky. We are, come on! Word for today. Each local church, that's us, exists as a witness to its community to lead them to the Saviour. By the way we live, by the way we talk, whether we care enough to help in times of need, whether we care enough to invite them to events, so that they know we care. This is a part of our witness. Did you know that each Sunday as we fill our car park and people drive down this road, people notice. They notice. And that's a witness in itself as well. In Philemon, which only has one chapter, there's two verses, and Paul writes this about the church. Because I hear of your love and of your faith, that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. There's that expression again. We know that expression means the church. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective. Why? For the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. I pray that your faith, I pray that your faith, your sharing of your faith will be effective in others coming to a full knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's my pastoral prayer through the week for you. I pray that you get opportunities. And even in the midst of adversity, you get the wisdom to be able to deal with it. Last week's pastor's desk, I wrote about Andrew Thornburn, the CEO of the Essendon Football Club, for 24 hours. Until Premier Dan Andrews said it was a disgrace and a shame, just, a, just an absolute disgrace that a bigoted homophobic person like him would even be considered to take on the leadership of a football club and what Dan Andrews didn't realize was that people saw him responding to a good man Andrew Thornburn is a good man one guy wrote to Guy Mason the pastor he wrote, or actually wrote, he wrote on Twitter, he tweeted this out. He said, what is going on in our country? The media are attacking Christians. Business is attacking Christians. And now politicians are attacking Christians. I'm over it, said this Twitter person. It almost makes me want to become a Christian again. <laughs> so what should someone experience when he or she comes into a church when we read in the new testament what people experienced it i wonder how many of us would be prepared to deal with what they had to deal with when they came into the corinthian church and paul talks about it earlier in in this epistle secrets are exposed things happen but what should happen and we're going to see i'm going to I'm jumping ahead a little bit, then I'll come back to the text and, and show you that this was a vital part of being a church and it happened in the first century church that Paul's talking to. When the church met and people who were not Christians came in, and Paul talks about this, they received a welcome. They received a welcome. It's one of the reasons why we want to have a welcome team, people who can be on the door, 
to welcome people. Can you imagine going into a church where the doors are closed, there are people on the other side of the door doing this, talking to each other, and you're walking up to the door with a pram, a bag of nappies under your arm, and a foot to open the door latch as you're wheeling the pram while they talk on the other side of the door? Can you imagine that? I hope you can't, because I hope you've never seen that. And I hope we never see that. I hope we see people who on the other side of the door say, excuse me, I just got to open this door. Or, if we ever get summer, we can have the door open. <laughs> but wouldn't that be nice if people come in and they get a welcome, a warm welcome. And that's what we want, a warm welcome. That's what they got in the first church as well. What else did they get when they walked into a church for the first time? They got accepted. They were accepted. And Paul, again, talks about this. What else did they get? They got authenticity. It, this is not a show. We're not putting on a sham. They got real. They experienced people who really were connecting with God and with Christ and people who genuinely knew him and they talk like they knew him and I, I hope that's what people experience here too. What else did they get? They got a church that was focused on Christ, not on business, not on numbers, not on attaining goals, not fulfilling their five-year plan. I don't know who's fulfilled their five-year plan at the moment. Good grief. But also, we see that when the church met, the original church met, people experienced that welcome, that acceptance, people who are authentic, people who are focused on Christ. But they also experienced a loving challenge. A loving challenge. And you know what that loving challenge might be? There's a better way to live. We want to invite you to come and experience a better way to live. You are dead in your sins and trespasses. Ephesians chapter 2. But Christ offers you new life. Don't you want a new life now? There's a loving challenge. It means you've got to repent. You've got to turn away from walking in that pathway to destruction. Turn around and walk not in the way you want to go, but in the way God wants you to go. And if you can't do that, here's a really cool bit of information all you have to do is ask him to help and he will a loving challenge and i hope that when people come into this church that's what they experience so from the humble beginnings in ad 30 or so or ad 35 or so when paul began his ministry where there was just one church in jerusalem what happened over the next 40 years here's a map of what happened over the next 40 years these green bits represent where uh, the green and the, and the red dots, the red dots are where the church was planted around the empire in the time of Paul. I point out this was called the Greco-Roman world. It was the world. It was their world. They didn't know about Australia. They didn't know about New Zealand. They didn't know about the Americas. That was their world. And that's why Paul could say in Colossians 1, 5 and 6, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world. Paul writing to the Colossians near the end of his life. And it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. That's what it looked like in that map in the 40 years of Paul's apostolic ministry. 
extraordinary. In Colossians 1.23, Paul says, I thank God this gospel has now been heard by every creature under heaven. And he's saying everyone in the Greco-Roman world has now heard the gospel. Isn't that, that's amazing. That's what they did in 40 years. Incredible. But what's happened since then? Let me show you the map of the world. So let's take a globe and unpeel it and roll it out. And this is what it would look like. And the blue areas, not the grey areas, the blue areas are areas where there are publicly known churches. The grey areas is where we can't tell you there's a church there, but there probably is. But if we did, they might be killed, literally. So the blue areas are the Christian zones of the world. Isn't that amazing? The darker the blue, the more committed to Christ. The greater the number of churches. As you can see, population goes from dark, 90 to 100%. What we don't see, oh, we might see, but in some of the Pacific Islands, everyone is a Christian. A friend of mine I mentioned, who's the chairman of Prison Fellowship Australia, just came back from Kenya. And he said, Andrew, 90 plus percent of Kenya are Christian. We go into the prison to see how they do prison ministry there. And they are having church services there nearly every day. And prisoners are being transformed by the Holy Spirit, coming out and totally reformed. They ask us, what are we doing in Australia? And we have to tell them the government won't let us do what you do. And they look at us bewildered. Why not? Don't they know that the only way you can transform lives so wrecked like these lives is by the power of Christ, the Holy Spirit and the gospel? Apparently not. So here's the point. The church is far bigger than you think. It's actually far bigger than you think, even in our own city. It's far bigger than you think. This is good news. And I want you to be in, boots and all. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 19 and 20, Paul says this, The churches of Asia, Asia, where they come from, send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla together with the church in their house. Churches were meeting in houses, meeting in buildings, meeting in households. Send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Don't do that. That was the way they culturally greet. What he meant was shake someone's hand heartily or do what is culturally appropriate to greet someone. And in that culture, you would on the cheek and on the cheek and don't you even try it with me so <laughs> it's mutual Gordy trust me it's me when you become a Christian here's the good news you may never have experienced a family you may never have experienced a dad or a mum or a brother or a sister but when you become a part of the church you can both locally and globally Kim and I and some others in this church, we, we've travelled lots of different parts of the world and you get welcomed in those churches like you're part of the family who's come home for a Christmas dinner. It's so wonderful. Lord, you, you've spoken and you've said that you're going to make this church into a nursery of new spiritual babes. You've spoken, Lord, and you've said that you want your people to be nursing mothers to new spiritual babes in this church. You've spoken and you've said 
that this church will be here for generations to come, seeing people come to Christ as new spiritual babes. And I pray that today you would do just that in people's lives. Those who perhaps feel disconnected, those who perhaps feel so lonely it hurts, so disconnected, so alone, that, Father, they would come to you in this time. And if you're watching this, if you're here now, this is the cry of your heart. Who understands me? Who knows me? I'm here today to tell you that your Father in heaven does, and he always has. Now come to him. Surrender to him. It's not by magic. It's not by doing anything. It's just a cry from your heart. God, save me. Have your way in my life. Please, help me to know you and to live for you and to live the way you've created me to live. You pray a prayer like that, I absolutely guarantee you, your life will begin to be transformed. And if you do, we want to give you some material to help you. And now, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be your church who welcomes who accepts that each of us live authentically, that each of us are a part of the loving challenge that we present to our community, that they need to turn in repentance to the Saviour. And now, Lord, help us to be brothers and sisters to each other. You, O oh God, are our Father. Christ is our brother and we are your family. May we know the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, and everyone said, Amen. God bless you. If you'd you. like to listen again or you've missed a program, you'll find an archive of all previous episodes on our website, findingtruthmatters.org. For tonight's program, select Corinthians Part 13 from our online store. You can also find the podcast by subscribing to Finding Truth Matters on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud. As we've heard tonight, each local church exists as a witness to its community to lead them to the Saviour. When you become a Christian, you become part of a family, locally and globally. More from Dr Corbett next week. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to joining you again at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters. 